Welcome to Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. I'm your host, Jim Dubois. The U.S. Supreme Court is the final arbiter of legal issues that can alter the course of history, yet much of its decision-making process takes place in private. A citizen scientist research project aims to shed light on these closed-door deliberations. Today on Dialogue Minnesota, University of Minnesota Moore's alumni distinguished professor of political science and law, Timothy Johnson, describes his efforts to transcribe the justices' handwritten notes for broad public access. We caught up with him at his office at the U of M. Professor Johnson, welcome to Dialogue Minnesota. Thanks for having me. Your project, The View from Behind the Curtain, establishing a database of Supreme Court conference note transcriptions, received a grant from the National Science Foundation. What inspired you to launch this endeavor? So that's a really good question. Um, My interest in the U.S. Supreme Court is how the justices make decisions. That is all of the behind the scenes, black box uh, parts of the process that lead to the final opinions. And there's a lot of work in political science and law and psychology and history that talk about many parts of the court's decision making process. The one part that has really been left alone has been the court's conference discussion. Now, one of two things can be the reason for that. One is maybe there isn't anything there to study. The other is that it could be really difficult to study. And it turns out that it's probably the latter and not the former. Nobody knows what happens in conference discussions because the only people who are there are the nine U.S. Supreme Court justices. Their clerks aren't there. Their secretaries aren't there. There are no security guards, only the nine. And they are very secretive about these meetings. And so there aren't even really any notes that are taken that are official notes from those meetings. And it turns out that a variety of justices who have left the bench over the past decades actually did take their own personal notes during those conference meetings. They then left those notes within their archives, either at the Library of Congress or at other archives at law schools or other colleges and universities around the country. And we decided several years ago that this might be a really interesting way to look at one other major part of the court's decision-making process where first votes are taken, where first discussions are had about how to decide the case and where the justices get to be really free to say whatever they want because only the nine of them are there. And so that was really the interest and the impetus for saying that we'd like to do this. And I'll add one other piece to that. Nobody, including my co-investigator at Michigan State University, Professor Ryan Black, nobody, including the two of us, wanted to do this project because initially we would have had to have transcribed these notes by hand. And the number of hours it would have taken were just insurmountable for us to actually do anything proper with these data. Why is it important to have this database of Supreme Court transcriptions? So I think it's important because the U.S. Supreme Court sets law and policy on most of the major, if not all of the major legal issues that face the United States today and has been doing so for well over 200 years now. The court is also the most secretive branch of our government. Your listeners, my friends, your friends can go to C-SPAN or C-SPAN.gov or C-SPAN.org any day and watch what goes on in Congress. They can watch committee hearings. They can hear debate on the floor of the Senator or the House. They can hear on the news any day the president or any of his advisors speaking about what's going on with the administration. The only time we see the U.S. Supreme Court is when the justices hold oral argument or when they announce decisions. And the court is small enough that very few of the public actions 
actually get in to see either of those two events in any given year. And so to open up the court to the public in a way that it's never been opened up before is just another way to show the public the way our democracy works. Why historically has there been such a level of secrecy attached to these particular deliberations? Yeah, that's a phenomenal question. And I think there's a twofold answer to that. One is this idea of the justices wanting to be able to have honest, open discussions without sound bites or anyone leaking what has happened in those meetings. That way they really can have the absolute debate about what is the right decision to make in this case. The other is that more generally the justices want to stay private and have their both professional and personal lives remain private for matters of keeping bias out of their decisions. They are not politicians, even though I would argue, and I do in my research, that they are political actors. But as judges in the United States and in our democracy, they are meant to decide cases in an unbiased fashion. And so keeping their deliberations private is a way to keep that bias at bay as much as humanly possible. Can you tell us about some of the important insights you have learned about certain cases or certain justices from reviewing these transcriptions? Sure. So the conference notes tell us a number of things, and some that lead to what we think will be either articles we will write or chapters of a book that we're planning at the end of the project. Two in particular. One is it's very clear to us that the justices care a lot about the precedents that they or their predecessors have set in the past, and so they have pretty good discussions, and, and justices will raise the particular precedents that are important for deciding the current case at hand. And so that is one sort of piece that has been very clear. That is, they care about the law that they have set. The other is, we have found pretty good evidence so far that the justices think about and discuss the other branches of government. We know constitutionally and statutorily that when the U.S. Supreme Court makes a decision, that Congress can overturn that decision. The president also is supposed to enforce those decisions, but we know even historically that sometimes that doesn't happen. So the justices have to be cognizant of both the president and Congress and how they might react to a particular decision that's handed down. We know from these transcriptions that the justices actually consider and discuss with one another what Congress might think and do and what the president might think and do. So those are two really important insights that we have come across. We're talking with Timothy Johnson. He is a Morris alumni, distinguished professor of political science and law at the University of Minnesota. We're talking about his citizen science project, The View from Behind the Curtain, establishing a database of Supreme Court conference note transcriptions. Tell us about the process of setting up an online project for citizen archivists. Uh, how do you recruit the volunteers? So this is really interesting. As I said earlier, one of the reasons we chose initially not to do this project was we didn't have the human hours to code. And a couple of summers ago, we actually came across from an email that was sent out university-wide. We came across this group, Zooniverse, zooniverse.org, which is a collaboration between the University of Minnesota, Oxford University, and the Adler Planetarium in Chicago. And they came up with, uh, around a decade ago, this idea of using citizen scientists to crowdsource scientific coding. Zooniverse actually has right now on its website worldwide 1.7 million volunteers who just like to help out academics who are interested in projects as far ranging as biology, astronomy, history, and now political science and law. And so when we pitched this idea to the Zooniverse folks, they were enamored immediately because they had been thinking about doing some transcription projects and had a few others that were brewing in the works. And they 
they thought that the SCOTUS Notes project might be a really big hit for them and would help us then transcribe these notes. And so the way that it worked, and it was beautiful, is we began to collect all of the the notes and the papers, Zooniverse on the other side of it was setting up the platform to create how the volunteers would come on and code and transcribe for us. And in the end, when we launched, an email was sent out initially to 300,000 of the folks who were on Zooniverse, and then they they will send that email out to others uh, in the coming weeks just asking them to volunteer. We've already had almost 1,000 folks transcribed for us on the website. Do the volunteers receive any training? That's a great question as well. They do not receive training on the website, scotusnotes.org. However, there is a tutorial, there's a field guide, and I think perhaps the best feature of using Zooniverse is that this is not all about just gathering data for a couple of political scientists. One of the keys to the citizen scientist movement is that there is actual interaction between the academic world, in this case, Professor Black and I, and the folks who code or transcribe for us. And so we keep track on a daily basis of what is happening on the website. And if someone has trouble, if they have a question, if they have a comment, if they have found a particularly cool or interesting note that they would like to talk to us about, they can hit a button that simply says talk, and they can write a message to us. We get a notification in our email And the two of us have been really pretty good about it. We try to get to people as quickly as possible, and then we can go on and have a chat with them about what their question is. It's been a beautiful and really interesting part of this process. Do we know much about the volunteers? Uh, Is there a certain demographic group that tends to volunteer for these kind of projects, or is it across the board? It really is, from what I understand, across the board, although we've taken a two-fold tack on this. So we have used the General's Universe volunteers who are tried and true and are really, really loyal, which has been fantastic for us. But then we have tried to advertise far and wide, for instance, on your show and in other academic outlets as well as other media outlets to try to garner volunteers who might be interested in the court or experts in the court or experts in history. And maybe the most interesting is we have advertised, sent out emails to groups that are still very interested in handwriting and cursive handwriting in particular, both in the United States and the UK. Now, I don't know how many of those folks have signed on to transcribe for us, but I imagine there's some segment that actually has. That brings up an interesting question. Cursive handwriting has gone by the wayside in the digital world since so much of what we send to one another is in the form of electronic correspondence. Do you find that uh, some people are better at reading cursive handwriting, or has that ever become an issue among any of the volunteers? It has become an issue for a few who have really sort of worried that they can't read any of the words. And and what we tell them is it really does take practice, right? It took us years to be able to read Justice Brennan's handwriting. And in fact, Justice Harry Blackman's handwriting is a whole lot worse than Justice (laughs) Brennan's. And so it took us time, and it'll take others time as well. But what we have found is we have had volunteers um, and folks who have talked to us personally who have said, I got my grandmother involved in this, and she was such a good writer, and she was very good at handwriting and cursive writing in particular, that she had no problem reading these notes right away. And so our suspicion, although we don't have data to back it up, is that older people who actually had cursive training like you and I did in school are probably 
a little bit better at this just because it will come to them naturally. And you're absolutely right. Our 12-year-old right now will probably never have a cursive signature because cursive was pulled out of the curriculum in our school district prior to him actually getting to that grade. When do you expect to complete the project? That's an interesting question. I think the initial data that we have up, the initial transcripts, uh, we have, I think, right about 12,600 pages from Justice Blackman's and Justice Brennan's files, their archives. We expect these to be done within two to two and a half more months. Um, We are already right around a quarter complete. And then we will add other justices. We will add Justice Powell and Justice Douglas and Justice Marshall and hopefully some papers from Justices Rehnquist and Warren as well. What will the finished project look like? A number of different things will happen. One is we will actually have all of the notes up on a website. Uh, Really, I think they'll end up on scotusnotes.org with the transcriptions next to them. And that will be for the public and court watchers and academics to look. You know, they can go and find any sort of case or any sort of issue area and look at the progression of justices' discussions on these particular issues. On our side, we plan to write a series of articles that are academic in nature. And then we plan to write a book that is not only geared to the academic audience, but is actually geared towards the public at large and court watchers at large, because we think that this is such an important historical find that we do not want it to get lost in the ivory tower. We really want to speak to folks who are just interested in the U.S. Supreme Court. Have you encountered any difficulties in the project yet? Oh, we've encountered many difficulties, right? So taking digital pictures... They don't always turn out perfectly when you've got a cadre of research assistants who are taking those pictures. Sometimes they turn out to be blurry. Sometimes the lighting turns out to not be as good. So we've had to take additional photographs a variety of times. So we've been to archives uh, multiple times, as well as sending RAs to those archives multiple times. We have had long discussions with the Zooniverse folks here at, at the university about exactly how to make the project go, and we've had fits and starts. But by and large, the people who are running Zooniverse not only here, but at Adler and at Oxford, have been so phenomenal that once we had all of the the papers together, they have made the process almost seamless for us. We're talking with Timothy Johnson. He is a Morris alumni, distinguished professor of political science and law at the University of Minnesota. We're talking about his citizen science project, The View from Behind the Curtain, establishing a database of Supreme Court conference note transcriptions. Did you need to ask permission of the two still living former Supreme Court justices and the current Supreme Court justices to access their notes? Absolutely not. So the justices who let their papers out, by and large, they are let out to the public. There are some that have restrictions from time to time. So for instance, Justice Brennan's papers, certain portions of them were embargoed for a large part um, of the, the time that they have been available to the public. And the interesting thing about Justice Brennan was was he made no provision in his will for what would happen once he died. So when he died, it turned out that you still had to ask permission of his estate, which turned out to be his children, to have access to the papers. About a year and a half ago, 
the estate finally went to the Library of Congress and said, enough is enough. All of his papers are now public. Justice Blackman made all of his papers public immediately. Justice Powell did the same. Former Chief Justice Rehnquist still has some timing embargo on his papers. You can get access to some early papers. But because there are still justices currently on the court who served with former Chief Justice Rehnquist, those papers in those years, for instance, since Justice Kennedy was on the bench, are still embargoed. Once Justice Kennedy leaves the bench, then those papers will begin to open up. How detailed are these notes? Do certain justices provide better accounts than others? Yeah, you know, it turns out it depends on the case and it depends on the justice. There are a whole host of papers that our volunteers will see that have no notes on them at all, and then they just skip them and go on to the next. And those might be where discussions weren't particularly interesting, or maybe the case was very easy to decide. Other cases have a lot of notes for every justice during the discussion, and so it really does vary between case and between justices. Followers of the Supreme Court note often that Some justices are more vocal than others. Some very rarely speak from the bench or ask questions of the uh, attorneys before them. In the notes from the private meetings, is there a consistency? Is, Is a quieter justice on the bench equally quiet in these meetings? What does your research indicate thus far? So we don't know for sure yet, but what we do know just from taking an unsystematic look at the papers, that it that varies from case to case as well, that there are some times where a very quiet justice is actually very verbose during the conference discussions. And Justice Thomas, who we are sort of talking about here, actually says that publicly. He says, look, I don't think it's my job to speak at oral argument. It's the attorney's job to speak. But when I get back and talk with my colleagues, that's where the real debate takes place. Some critics decry what they say is the growing politicalization of the Supreme Court. Do you think this database may confirm this criticism? You know, I actually think what this database might show is just the opposite, that the court has really continued to stay above the fray when it comes to partisanship. I was asked years ago whether or not justices are partisan, and my answer is that they're not. They're political, but they're not partisan. And so because they don't need to be reelected, they don't have to kowtow to a particular party, to a particular constituency, to particular interest groups, or anyone else. That freedom of having lifetime tenure allows them to say to themselves, we can argue, we can even fight over particular legal and policy issues, but at the end of the day, we're all colleagues and we want to get along with one another. And this is actually shown by two things. Before the justices go out for every single oral argument when they're in the cloakroom, they shake hands with all of their colleagues all of them, whether the most conservative or the most liberal. And before they begin conference discussions, they shake hands with all of their colleagues, no matter if you're the most liberal or the most conservative. They want that collegiality to stay part of how they decide cases, because for them, what is important is getting the law right, rather than saying, I'm doing this for a particular partisan purpose. Have you received any feedback from the former living justices or the current justices about this project? If so, has it been positive? Are they looking forward to seeing the final product? So we've had no interaction with Justices O'Connor, Souter, or Stevens yet. We really wish that we would. Um, I think that they could really give a lot of flavor to a project like this. Unfortunately, Justice O'Connor and Justice Souter still actually serve as judges on lower courts from time to time as they've taken their senior status. And Justice Stevens, I 
think is just enjoying his life in Florida right now. So if we can speak with him about it, we hope we can, but we haven't so far. We're talking with Timothy Johnson. He is a Morris alumni, distinguished professor of political science and law at the University of Minnesota. We're talking about his citizen science project, The View from Behind the Curtain, establishing a database of Supreme Court conference note transcriptions. Do you think this database will inspire more diligent note-taking in the future on part of the Supreme Court justices? That's a phenomenal question. I don't know. It could go either way, right? It could lead to more diligent note-taking so that we would know what goes on, or they might say, maybe we don't want to take notes at all because we want these discussions to remain private. And we want to be very clear, right? Our purpose is not to out a justice for saying something outrageous. Our purpose is to understand the process that they went through to get to their decisions because it is those black box parts of a decision-making process that we know from psychology and economics and sociology and anthropology that are the most important parts of the process. So this is just about uncovering how the process works rather than try to find whether a justice slipped up or made a mistake or something like that. Do you think this database will encourage greater transparency from the Supreme Court in general? I would wish. I think that most scholars who study the court from a political or legal perspective wish, for instance, that they would begin to put cameras in the courtroom, as many lower courts have done. In fact, the Minnesota Supreme Court now live streams all of its oral argument. The justices, I don't think, are going to get that far anytime soon, but there might be a little bit more transparency, maybe a little bit more openness. If they can see that once scholars and the public see that once they are open, it's just a matter of us learning about how they are acting, not trying to criticize what they're doing. Does the current veil of secrecy behind these deliberations benefit the justices? Does it benefit the American public in any way, or is it a bad thing? Is it bad that things are happening behind closed doors that until now we really didn't know much about the process of the decision-making? Right. I actually think that for the most part it benefits the justices, right? Justice Rehnquist was very happy that he could mow his lawn, and most people who walked down the street except his neighbors didn't know who he was. And it wasn't because he had anything to hide. It was because he didn't want to, as a judge, have discussions about cases that he might be deciding next Wednesday. The other great anecdote is Justice Harry Blackman, who was either famous or infamous, depending on how you look at it, for writing the Roe versus Wade opinion for the U.S. Supreme Court in 1973. Massive protests outside of the court every January 22nd now. There are pro-life folks as well as pro-choice folks. Justice Blackman took great pride in the fact that he could almost every year take a stroll around the protesters and not once in all the years that he did so did anybody actually recognize him. And that was good, I think, for the court. It was good for Justice Blackman, and it was good for the way justice works in the United States. Have any of the notes that have been transcribed so far given any indication as to how justices might feel about one another? You mentioned they do take into consideration how Congress may act, how the president may act to their decision. But is there any indication from these notes about personal relationships or a fondness for one another among the justices? Right. We haven't found a whole lot in these notes yet, although I suspect they're there. Um, we also have a, a corpus of Justice Harry Blackman's notes that he took during oral argument. And he would sometimes 
comment about his colleagues. And sometimes he would comment that something annoyed him by what a colleague said at oral argument. And other times he would write that he was actually happy that a justice said something or did something. And so really, those notes really got us into the psyche of Justice Blackman. And having his notes from conference, we're pretty certain there might be some of those types of notes there as well. But we haven't found many of them yet. At this point in the process, do you still have a need for more volunteers to transcribe? Absolutely. We could use anybody who wants to come out and transcribe at any time. And so we think that our friends on social media, whether it's Facebook or Twitter, uh, might get tired of us as we continue to post. We'll hopefully post this interview. We'll post articles that are written. And that's not actually meant to say, hey, look at the great things we're doing. We're doing it really to get more volunteers. The more, the better. The quicker the transcription will get done. And actually, more importantly, the more volunteers we have, the more accurate the transcriptions will be. One thing I haven't talked about is that the transcription part of this project, we have 10 volunteers who will see every single page. And what we do behind the scenes with some really interesting algorithms that I don't know a whole lot about how they work, those algorithms then help us figure out between those 10 volunteers what each word is most likely saying. So we will get an accurate account of every single word on every single line because we have multiple transcribers looking at every single page. Timothy Johnson is a Morris alumni distinguished professor of political science and law at the University of Minnesota. Professor Johnson, thanks so much for joining us on Dialogue Minnesota. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. I'm Jim Dubois. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.